This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Tēnā koutou e te whānau, nō mai ki tēnei hotaka. Ko Ed Amon tōku ingoa. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Book Network's podcast, New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. That's a mouthful name, but um, it's good. I hope you are all doing well. It is a fantastic day in New Zealand, and I hope it is a fantastic day wherever you are. All right. Um New book. Today we are talking to Anna and Kelly Pendergrast about the new book, uh, More Zeros and Ones, Digital Technology and Equity in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Anna and Kelly are editors of this fantastic book with chapters, uh, uh, chapter contributions from several authors across the board. Um, and a bit of, uh, some introductions that um, Anna is a Wellington-based analyst and writer and co-founder with Kelly uh, of NT Static, a research and communication consultancy aiming to bring clarity to complex issues in technology and the environment. Before uh, uh, the co-founding of NT Static, she worked as a policy and strategy advisor for uh, the New Zealand Public Service. Kelly is a New Zealand writer and researcher living in San Francisco. That's nice. And is the co-founder also, as I said before, of Antistatic. Kelly's writings on aesthetics and uh, politics of technology appear in numerous outlets in the US, New Zealand, and Europe. Previously, Kelly led communications for an environment and non-profit and was board president of Artists Television Access, one of San Francisco's longest-running experimental media organizations. Kia ora, tēnā korua. Welcome to the show. <laughs> it's it's weird. I always I go through these uh, written introductions and I always feel, and I do some self-reflections, that whenever they are done in a conference or something, I usually kind of zone out and and kind of wait for the author to come and or or the presenter to come and talk about it. So I always ask this question: How would you introduce introduce yourself? I will start with you, um, uh, Anna. Uh, kia ora, and thanks so much for having us. Uh, you did a good job and uh, covered lots of the big bases there. So Kelly and I work together as anti-static. And as you said, we do uh, communications and research mainly around technology and the environment. And kind of importantly, where those kind of issues intersect with people's lives, uh, kind of the really exciting, juicy bits for us and how to kind of get better outcomes for everybody. Uh, And that's kind of one of the themes of the book around equity as well as you'll see. Hmm. Um, And as well as our kind of client work that we do with folks, um, we also do our own writing practice, both things like this book, but also kind of articles and uh, essays and that kind of thing as well. So we get to do some kind of client work and our own uh, uh, self-directed study, I guess, as well, which is a cool combo. Um, Kelly, did you want to add anything? Oh, sorry, I'm doing a job now, Ed. Oh, but... <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Get in, get in there. Get in there. <laughs> Pass it over to me. Kia ora, Ed, and yeah. hi, Anna. Um, I think between the two of you, you've pretty much summed it up. The one thing that I will change is that I don't live in San Francisco anymore. I live in Oakland, which is about five miles away from San Francisco. Mm. Um, in the Bay Area, the weather is slightly warmer there and mm. uh, slightly cheaper uh, rent-wise. Mm. But other than that, pretty much the same. And then at the moment, I'm in I'm in the the um, 
snowy confines of New Hampshire, which is on the on the east coast. And oh nothing much, nothing much else to add to the intro though. Anna summed up what we do at Antistatic, and yeah, great to be here. That's that's fantastic. So, um, um, so you, as everybody would have presumed, that you are siblings, um, and so ju- just as an uh, as the start, I wanted to um, get into the motivations of you know, working together and foundation of anti-static, how did that come about? And what, I mean, I can't really agree with my siblings on anything. So how did that, how did that happen? Uh, It's a good question. I think as uh, Kelly and I didn't always agree on everything. So I think that this is not a partnership that could have happened, you know, even 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But I think um, we started we've done work and collaborations together, you know, forever being siblings. Uh, mm. And Kelly's got some, Kelly's very good at articulating our kind of teenage years. Uh, so I'll throw it over to her in a minute, but kind of uh, maybe seven years ago now, Kelly and I were both doing jobs that were like fine, but not particularly uh, fulfilling in the long term. I think or we realized we mm. weren't necessarily doing what we wanted to do forever and now it seems so weird and kind of out of character, at least for me, that we both decided to kind of quit our jobs or quit what we were doing and decide to do this thing that we didn't really know how to do. We like we knew absolutely that we could do the writing and the communications, but we'd never run a business before or any of that. Mm. So it seems now, looking back, a little bit of a, a jump of faith or whatever, but uh, we've figured it out as we went and also just happened to have a combination of lots of similarities in our background, but enough differences that we're not just the same the same person. So I think we now work together really, really well. And I think uh, I feel very lucky for our partnership, but I don't think I could do this same thing with that many people. Um, <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, so before, before we uh, jumped in, head first into anti-static together, as Anna mentioned before, Anna was, had been working as a policy analyst um, for the New Zealand government. And I think you might have, I can't remember if you'd quit by then and you were doing contracting Anna or not. Um, I was still full-time, I think. You were, okay. And I was working as a freelance um, media producer and a writer. So I was doing communications for mostly environmental nonprofits. And Anna, I think you were, you went at the end of your rope, but you, you were looking for something else to do. And I was tired of freelancing by myself, you know, and working with clients, which I really enjoyed doing, but feeling like I wasn't really building much of anything. And uh, it was maybe a little bit of a lonely road. And so I think we both both felt like we're at an impasse and that it was a cool opportunity to work together in a more structured way. And as Anna said, that wouldn't have been possible 20 years, 10 years ago. We've, you know, been close for a long time, but obviously have disagreements as all siblings do. <laughs> but it's been, I don't know, remarkably simpatico, I think, working mm. together. We, you know, we used to fight a lot. We, we never fight anymore. Um, we are able to, you know, I think, um, hold each other accountable, but also give each other the freedom and that we need and the kind of like, you know, support that each other needs. <laughs> and it's just been great. So I'm, you know, I kind of feel... Uh, sorry for people who don't have a great collaborator like Anna. Mm. And yeah, I feel really lucky that we get to do this together. That's an, uh, th- that's very interesting because, I mean, uh, I, I relate to that in terms of the impasse uh uh, that you mentioned. I mean, I, I was working for many years in commercial business, and one day I decided, "Oh, mm-hmm. what the hell am I doing?" And just uh, instead of going part time and trying this and trying that, I just completely stopped that, and then started a new education journey. Um, so, yeah, it's um, yeah, that's a it, huge a huge jump. Yeah, it it it, it is, and. Also, I mean, I, it's, it's, I always am interested in sibling relationships and business. I mean, there's always this, um, the, the, the openness between siblings is a bit more, but the, the, um, the openness to communication friction, communicating frictions is a little bit more, but the quickness of resolving issues is more as well because siblings are open to each other. And then Mm. you have a big, uh, a big point of friction and then all of a sudden it's gone. And mm-hmm. um, so um, I find that uh, quite interesting. 
Yeah, well, I guess we've been, you know, we've been practicing communicating with each other for our entire lives. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, although, and I think we probably also know that if we were to have an epic fight and a really huge falling out, it would be not only bad for our business, but bad for our entire family. So, yeah. you know, there's even, there's even more impetus to, uh, to keep things chill. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, uh, it, it's it's fantastic. I I I I love it. It's the 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 process of I mean being involved in a business together with uh, with uh, which is related to communications and the issues of technology and equity. Um, how did the idea of the book came about? Uh, so we were very lucky in that was it now I can't time after the pandemic is kind of all gone into one year but uh before before the pandemic in 2019 I think we were asked by uh Andrew Dr Andrew Chen who works on digital technology issues he was editing the first uh kind of edition of this book uh called Shouting Zeros and Ones and we were asked um or recommended to write a chapter about digital inclusion for that book uh which is something that we'd worked on before kind of in our in our client work and were really interested in so we wrote that chapter and kind of out of that came the opportunity for, for somebody uh, to edit the second and a second edition because there are just so many topics and themes that the first book didn't even scratch the surface of. And so through that, uh, Andrew got us in touch with the folks at Bridget Williams Books. Uh, and mm. so it was kind of this remarkably smooth process from uh, – we were very lucky that we didn't, Andrew did a lot of that hard heavy lifting for us by <laughs> vouching for us. Uh, and he had done a great job on the first book. So we kind of got in through that way. Um, and so we had, you know, a pr quite specific confines on what the book was, but also a lot of freedom in terms of picking areas and uh, how we wanted to focus that as well. So it was kind of an exciting prospect to have enough of a parameter that we knew what we wanted to do, but, but, uh, wasn't so strict that we couldn't put our own mark on it. Ah, oh, so the, the, that is interesting. So it was, um, and and both of you got involved straight away. Yes, yep. Yeah. And I think, yeah, through the first book, the first book, um, as I understand it, really came out from lots of really great discussions that were had at a conference called NetHui, run by Internet New Zealand in 2019. And from that um, conference, a whole bunch of folks who we're all thinking about these issues kind of came together, um, pulled together by Andrew to have these kind of um, discussions in this first book. And from there, yeah, we really enjoyed being involved in that process and being part of that kind of wider community of authors. And so it was, we knew it was going to be a lot of work, but I think it was a bit of a no brainer for us to say, yes, this is um, up our alley. And I think it's up our alley both because we write about this stuff in our day job and we think about it a lot, but we are also, we know that a lot of logistics are involved in that kind of thing as well. And that's something that we also have to do in our lives. So we felt like that combo of the actual writing, the thinking and the logistics was something we could do. So we were pretty, we jumped on board straight away as I remember it, Kelly. But Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think we probably even had uh, the idea in the back of our minds that if there was going to be a second volume that we'd love to be involved. So yeah, when Andrew asked if anyone wanted to put their hands up, we instantly put our hands up. So it's um, um, it's interesting always with books which are edited by authors uh, with a um, submissions from different uh, different authors as well. Um, so um, it, was that a cumbersome process or an easy process to contact people, or was it was it uh, uh, um, because I always find it intriguing how people just get on board to write a chapter in a book um so yeah if if, if you can elaborate a little bit more uh, uh on it because in my postgraduate degree i mean a lot of academic work is edited work rather than full books by one author or two authors right so yeah um what a, a how was that experience yeah Absolutely. Uh, so when we when we did put in a proposal to Bridget Williams, we we kind of came up with a, a guiding concept or a couple of concepts that we wanted to focus on, which was a little bit more about kind of equity, accessibility, and building a digital world that works for everyone, not just for the top ten percent or the top one percent or you know the the middle of the bell curve. Um, and we 
got to imagine what are the ideal topics we'd love to include and who are the really awesome people that we'd like to um, to feature because we know you know we, we already knew a lot of people in the kind of digital technology space but there are other folks that we hadn't met as well who we really respect and whose work we love um, and so it was kind of a cool opportunity to pull together a bunch of potential topics and say oh I think that so-and-so would be I'd love to have them write a topic up a, mm. a chapter on this so it was a little bit pie in the sky and we got to put together our wish list of who would we love to have chapters by and what would we love them to write about. Mm. And then we, I think we had a relatively uh, easy enough time getting in touch with most people. There was one chapter we were hoping to include, which was one that was explicitly kind of about the maintenance of digital systems. So thinking about mm. things like technical debt, uh, thinking about like these tech stacks that kind of oh, degrade yeah. over time and um, the work of, you know, fixing code and keeping systems maintained that we, we and I don't know if this was a failure of our network or a fail, or, or that folks haven't done much of theorizing around it, but we weren't mm. able to find anyone to write that chapter. But everything mm. else, I think we we found people to to write about to to write on it and so i know that's different to often in academic work where people will submit chapter ideas you know there'll be an open call for chapter ideas we got to be a little bit more curatorial Mm. um which was like really a huge privilege and like a really cool chance to reach out to people who whose work we love who we may have otherwise not had had a chance to get in touch with anything else to add anna i i think the only thing that i'd add was that i think out of the nine chapters in the book, I think seven, if I recall correctly, were from people that we knew of before and we already knew were mm. folks that we wanted to work with or that we thought either their particular area of expertise or their general writing was great. And then there were two chapters, which was Robots in the Workplace and The Right to Repair, which we knew we kind of wanted um a kind of something on that area um, mm. but we didn't know, know who the people were so that was where people like Andrew and other folks in our networks uh, were really great at being able to point us towards who those folks were and though both teams of writers that we worked with from there were really awesome as well so that was a real treat to get to know people outside of our network that are also working on these kind of topics so that was also really cool. Yeah, so it's great that you've automatically started mentioning topics from the book, which is which is great because we can get into the crux of it. The one of the basic foundation when I started reading the book was the idea that really hit me was that we plan for the eighty percent. Most of us, we plan for the 80%. And I connected to, to, to my studies as well in, 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 in liberal democracy. I mean, the, the, the central idea of democracy is not everybody. The central idea of democracy is 51%, right? So, um, um, and, and that was a great idea. And it really set up the book really well. Um, and so... And also, there were certain themes like uh, Maori data sovereignty um, and inclusion. Starting with the 80, 80% bell curve, what are your thoughts of our, uh, our actual way of working in agencies uh, of government and private organizations it, it seems that all the research that we've done, we we go with the majority. We go twenty five percent is not enough, right? If somebody is uh, preferring something and those people are twenty five percent of the total, those will be ignored and we'll go to somewhere else. So, it, it, I, f- I find that this is it's a cultural clash as well as a practice clash. What what are your thoughts uh, on that? I think it's a really tricky issue Mm. and I think it's okay despite maybe what we said in the book it's okay for not everything to be for everyone you know yeah yeah I don't think that all software has to be built for every user um and some things are rightly for a specific audience or a specific group of people I think we're Mm -hmm. the the problem with the 80% thing, which is the idea that, um, you know, building software or building a system for the kind of middle 80% of the bell curve, so the people that are within the norm, the quote-unquote normal range, is that oftentimes the 20% that is excluded ends up being the same 20%, you know? So mm. it ends up being people who are poor, um, people who don't have good access to technology, people who are uh, from minority ethnic groups, um, Mm. people who 
don't know how to use technology and maybe older people who are disabled people end up being the people who are excluded from like a lot of these systems. So I think if it was a different 20% being excluded every time, if it was rich people being excluded, if it was um, people who um, have great access to technology being excluded some of the time, it might not be a problem. But I think the problem for for me is that it's often the same folks who are excluded from lots of these different systems. What do you think, Anna? Yeah, I think that you articulated that really well. And I think for us, through our work over the last, whatever, seven years or plus, this idea that comes up that when people talk about technology a lot, they talk about the digital world or this kind of being uh, that digital is somehow different from the rest of life. But as you know, and this sounds a little bit boring, but as, as more and more things are done online and people are expected to engage with digital services, or it's just, you know, if you think about, if I think about my daily life, I use my phone or I use digital technologies all of the time, and it really reduces a lot of friction in what I do. So a lot of things, just my day-to-day life is is in the digital world. It's not separate from real life. And so that's why this is so important as well. It's not just about one particular digital service, but if you can't consistently engage in digital technology because it's not designed for you that's not that's exclusion from day-to-day life uh and that really sucks so that's kind of the stakes here are pretty high i think um and i think that lots of folks are trying really hard and especially with things like accessibility um or making sure that your kind of digital content and systems are built for everyone including disabled people or people that aren't literate for uh, or can't understand complex language i think that there's a huge move towards understanding that importance and i think understanding is the first step to actually doing something about it so i think there is a shift and i think that people do mean well but it's also much easier just to do something for that 80 percent than to to think about the kind of wider picture even though the benefits i think for doing things for everyone is is for everyone it's not just for um the people that you're the 20%, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, and um, it, 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 recently I was listening to another podcast and uh, there was a comment made by um, um, uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson about the difference between the 80% and the 20% in the bell curve. So the change of 1% for the 80%, it's, it's a tiny change. But for that 20% in the peripheries, it's a huge difference. So somebody who isn't able to access because of um, um, bad vision, um, a tiny change in the main system will be a huge difference for someone uh, who's uh, who's hanging out at the twenty percent, um, which is uh, which is a which is a great concept. One thing you mentioned. Um, about the, um, I mean, we talk about digital and it sounds boring and it it sounds jargony. Uh, one thing that the book does really, really well, all the chapters are it's extremely accessible in terms of reading and, um, um, and really translate the technologies into layperson's language. Uh, uh, someone like me who has... N- uh, n- not much expertise in like complex issues um, like data sovereignty or algorithms. Um, so was that a um, deliberate um, act uh, as editors or the authors just automatically was like, okay, it's, it's a book for public consumption. We'll just go um, um beyond our own, uh, you know, uh, assumptions about academic writing and just go forward and write uh, write for regular people? I think it was a combo. I think that um, by and large, people were really, the writers were really aware of their, their audience and who the book was for. But at the same time, there was a really big range of both uh, experience writing essays or articles like this and kind of styles, as you say, we've got some like very well-accomplished academics and academic writing is a very specific way of writing. Mm. So in some of those cases, there were, Kelly and I did work with folks, you know, also as experienced uh, lay readers in a way, we're not super expert in these areas, which is why it's important to get other people (laughs) to write about them. But we could ask those kind of questions of like, what do you mean here? Or can you clarify this? 
in areas that we thought that either the readers or us didn't quite get in the way they were originally written. But I think that in all cases, the drafts started from a really good base of being able to explain those things. In some cases, we did ask, you know, can we add a little bit more framing up the top or that kind of thing? Mm. And so I think our kind of day-to-day work in this kind of translation of technical stuff for wider audiences was really helpful background for us to to try and help in the book. And I'm so glad to hear that you found it easy to understand and these topics were accessible to you. So that's real awesome to hear. Totally. And it was definitely a big priority for us. Um, I think it's taken us a while to learn sometimes that you can explain complicated stuff in simple language and I think it's a daily struggle probably more for me than Anna because Anna's background in public service you've had it drilled into you Anna about using short sentences you know using uh simple words and stuff whereas I tend towards being more flowery if I'm if I'm um, unattended but I think I've learned over the time working with Anna and working doing communications and writing for different organizations just how powerful it can be to write simply and so we were definitely on board to try and make sure that the most people could understand this book. Yeah, and I would recommend it to to the listeners as well, um, because I always feel that way when I see the word technology in a title, I was like, oh my God. And um, uh, But when I started reading it, it, it was set up, set up really, really, really well. And it was a really fast read, actually. It's... Um, you read pretty, pretty quickly. Now, some of the themes that are recognized in the chapters that were most, yeah, almost on most of the chapters uh, was this idea of um, exclusion of uh, the concept of teterity and Tanga the Fenua inclusion in design. Um, in so, and it's and it's widespread as well, from legislation to private organizations, how they how they work as well, and um, so my my question was, it is is it something that you've seen in your uh, regular interactions with clients in writing as well? That I mean, it is it, it it does get pointed out quite a lot, but do people take actionable? changes or implement actionable changes within their companies when they are informed uh, of these uh, steps that are needed to be taken according to Te Tiriti? I I mean, I can only, I guess, speak generally about what we see in this. And I think mm-hmm. that I'm, you know, Kelly and I are still pretty early in our uh, Te Tiriti journey as well and learning mm-hmm. what that means for us as Tanga Te Tiriti, mm-hmm. um, at least me living in New Zealand and Kelly working in this area and how that what that what that means to be good tangatiriti in our day-to-day life and our work and whatnot. And mm-hmm. so we are absolutely not experts, but what I am seeing mm-hmm. is that folks there is change and there are thing, you know, organizations more and more just kind of generally if you look are are starting to at least talk about it, if not act. But I think that it gets trickier when you dig deeper and you realize that to really properly you know, think about Māori data sovereignty or governance and to think about tetiriti or waitangi, there is a need to rebalance power. Mm. And that is hard for people. (laughs) It's hard for people to really, you know, when you come to terms with that, and I'm speaking as a Pākehā person here, that Mm. I've got intergenerational benefits from colonization Mm. and whatnot, and to, to rebalance that does mean giving things up and changing ways of doing things and people find that really hard and I understand that so I think that change is being made but until that kind of people realize that that big change needs to be made and that rebalancing power we'll see how it goes I think that only only some benefit uh, can be found or so much progress can be made without really dealing with that kind of crux if that makes sense Um, but I think that you know, even just looking in the last 10 years, the difference of people talking about tertiality and what that means and what that looks like kind of in general discussion, you know, work's been done by folks in government and outside of government for ages, but in that kind of general discourse, I see that so much more now. But Kelly, I don't know if you want to add anything. I think that, that was, now, no, yeah. That was great. I think the other thing that's a challenge is that we work, you know, with 
individuals that are really great and are really invested in doing things better and in bringing in expertise that they need to, whether it's a Māori or disabled people or people, you know, people whose perspectives you need in order to build a good product or a good system. But the people that we work with, like the individuals and the teams we work with are all part of bigger organize, mostly part of bigger organizations as well. And that's where it can be harder to shift, you know, because even if you as, a, as one person or one team want to, uh, you know, make things better, want to bring in certain kinds of expertise and want to change the way that you're doing things, you also have to get institutional buy-in as well. And mm. uh, changing, you know, moving these big ships around takes a lot of time and there's a lot of interlocking systems that are kind of hard to shift. Uh, and so I think it's, there's different timescales for change, I think. And Anna, as you say, like just in general conversation and I think in probably general public understanding of tetiriti and what it, what, what it means and what the responsibilities of, you know, the, the crown, quote unquote, and uh, tangata tetiriti are, I think has probably increased, but I think in terms of how institutions change, the pace is a, a little bit more glacial, even though lots of really great work is being done. Yes, and and you mentioned the concept of power, and um, and it seemed that the in development of any any systems, um, uh, it 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 does end up favoring the people in power. Maybe it's it's it 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 might not be a deliberate um, um, action, uh, but. Uh, people who have power, people who have uh, more agency, they they end up getting more systems made for them, uh, as compared to uh, people who might be uh, different in terms of ethnicity or uh, their actual ability in terms of disability. So, um, the, the concept of power is very hard to hard to navigate um, and accept for people. Um, that they are in a position of power because there's always a defensive reaction, the reaction to that. I don't know what's my question there, but what what are your comments of this this presence of power, which is there, but uh, the recognition of it becomes a little bit difficult because there's a defensiveness uh, in there. I mean that that's a big and good question, and I think. I think I agree, <laughs> but and also I think again I can reflecting on myself and again as I'm learning more about uh, what it means to be a Pakia in New Zealand right now and what my responsibilities and whatnot are and looking at my family history and whatnot, you know I can understand the wanting to be defensive or the you know that wasn't me that was my ancestors or mm. whatever it might be mm. and really just having to hold your feelings and realize that actually. You just have to sit with it to an extent. And I think that can be really, really hard to do. Um, and it also in terms of power, often because it's embedded in systems and it's not the, you know, individual people purposely wield, some some do, but purposely wielding power in ways that are purposely trying to exclude people, you can only actually see, you can only understand the world within what you know and within your worldview or your understanding of other worldviews. So a lot of this is just, people designing things in ways that work for them or what they know about. And so if you don't, if you can't see that wider picture or that whole ways of thinking are excluded from that, then I think it's really, it's really easy to reinforce those same power and the same status quo. If that makes sense, I'm a little bit all over the place, but. No, no, it does. Yeah. And I think if you, if you have money to deploy, you know, if you mm. are a philanthropist or if you work in, in, you know, government or if you work for a big company, and you have got the money and you say, we're going to build the system, you know, I think the temptation is just to assume that you know the best, you know, best how to do it because you're an expert in computer science or you're an expert in policy or you're an expert in, you know, whatever your job is. Um, and so to say, maybe my way of doing it and maybe my expertise isn't what's needed here. You know, if you say that you're trying to build something for whatever victims of domestic violence or refugees, um, maybe your way of doing it isn't the best. And I think to realize that is quite challenging. And I think um, just on a really micro scale, mm -hmm. one thing that, you know, we, and we've been thinking about Anna and I a lot, how to 
uh, how to do better in terms of accessibility. So when we're making documents or media products or working with people, how can we make sure that stuff that we put out in the world is most accessible to different people, whether they're using a screen reader or whether, mm. however they're interacting with the content. And at first it was my temptation to say, well, ugh, it's really ugly if you have to do it that way. If you, know, if you have mm. to have the font size be a certain size, if mm. you can't use certain color combinations, if you need to do certain things with headings in order to make it accessible, it looks gross, you know, and I, and mm. uh, uh, that's not what I want to do. I want to do it my way because I think aesthetics are important. But to realize that you can make something that looks really cool and functions really well and is really accessible for a lot of people, if you can, if you can kind of have that mind shift and realize that there are other ways of doing things that are more inclusive and that do shift the system a little bit, it can still be really cool and really beautiful. But you do just have to hold your feelings a bit and talk to other people and uh, realize that you're not always right. Mm. And, and I think just on that as well, you know, you know, and I think about this quite a lot uh, in terms of, yeah, more generally, but the idea of having restrictions in your work and working within, you know, sometimes restrictions that might seem really hard or difficult can be really exciting and empowering, whether that's, you know, if you, and that's a, been a creative thing forever you know folks working in creative industries or music or art having these either self-imposed or systems imposed requirements of what you use in your practice Mm. I think that can make some of the coolest outputs and I think again recognizing that and being seeing that as an opportunity rather than as Kelly said ugh, this is not what I want to do but you know (laughs) and then and changing your mind frame I think and again I don't think we do any of this perfectly but we try and be aware of it mm-hmm. um and realize that actually if you you build those things in from the beginning and you know what your requirements are you can still do a really cool thing that works for more people uh and again with accessibility still something we're learning and we're trying to learn as quick mm-hmm. as we can but again i wouldn't want to get across that we are perfect or of all of this stuff and have worked it out because mm-hmm. like anyone else we're just muddling along and trying our best and learning but uh try our best to be open to it and to listen to other people which i think is the most important thing is that mm. people are telling you uh that something's not working for them to listen to them yeah and and also it's um it's a great opportunity um and a great pl- platform that you have provided with the book with some of the voices that um, might not end up writing their own book, uh, or they're um, or, or they are working in the community um, with so so much dedication that they don't have time to write academic writings and all that. And um, so you've given them an opportunity. Okay, this is a platform, and 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 the wide I mean, wide variety of um, um, aspects of life that can be included uh, in that. I mean, we haven't, we still haven't, you know, we've been talking for how many minutes, 36 minutes. And we're not talking, we haven't talked about social media or all that regular digital stuff yet, because the, uh, as you said, the, um, even if you are, it was in the book, if you, if you are, if you disconnect yourself, you still have a digital footprint. Um, so one thing that you mentioned um, um, Kelly when you said about you know you wanted something that, uh, a similar way um, and it, it relates to something in the book called the, the, the fallacy of usability so we research for usability what is easy to use um, and ignore everything everything else around it right so if we test an app we test an app from start to finish how quickly it took from a to b or a to the answer and that's it and that means that it is a good one and we ignore the other aspects um um uh, aspects of it um what are your thoughts um specifically related to digital apps and um things that are in the phone um what what actions can can companies take or app makers take uh in terms of widening their focus from just usability to society yeah i think the the usability came up question came up i think in the robots and the workplace yes. question where it was a it was a computer scientist or uh talking about how you know how things usually get built how 
software and technology usually gets built in their um, in their field and saying that oftentimes you you build the thing that you think you need already. You, you think, okay, we need to solve X problem. Mm. Let's build an app that solves X problem. And then you bring in people to test it, right? So you do your usability testing once you've kind of already figured out what you think the, the problem is and what you think the solution is. And then you, you do some A-B testing and you do some, you know, um, some UX testing to kind of figure mm. out the figure out the final little bits, like where should the button go? You know, what should the order of the, you know, the click through be like, but I think the, the big, the big thing that that author, the point that that author was making and that really stuck out to me is the idea that usability testing shouldn't just be how, how can people, how can you make the app that you've already built to solve the problem that you've already defined Hmm. easiest for somebody, an end user, but instead how can you bring in the people that you think are your end users right at the beginning and make sure that the problem that you think you're trying to solve is actually a problem and maybe ask them what, what problems they're struggling with and then work with them to build a solution or a piece of technology that will actually help them solve the problem. So I think Mm. that's kind of the crux of it, uh, which is like not necessarily very appetizing for a lot of people making technology. And I'm just, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a coder. I'm not a technical person. But um, I make lots of other kinds of things. And so to think that if you have a cool idea, you've got the killer app, you've got your deck, you're going to get some funding. You're like, yes, we're going to do this cool thing. To be asked to actually go out before you even do your problem definition work and talk to some people who you think you're trying to serve and have to listen to them when they're like, nah, that's crap. You should do something else because this is what we need. It might not be very appealing for people. So I think that's the challenge for people who are making technology um, to actually work with end users and work with communities to figure out problems collaboratively before you can kind of figure out solutions collaboratively, mm. which is a big ask. Yeah. Anything else? No, I think that was very well articulated. And I think, as you say, it is a big ask. And we're also really cognizant of the fact that, you know, businesses are there to make money and that's, a, you know, the economy also important. And so, and I know that we can sometimes sound like that's, you know, we're not thinking about that as well. But I think time and time again, you see people that are delivering for people and have designed things well, and actually it's really good for their business as well. So Mm. I think that that's, um, you know, this can be good because it's the right thing to do, but it's also can be good for your business too, I guess. Yeah, it is. Um, it's one of those things that kind of hit me with my um, with my religious background. I'm not that religious that much anyway, but still with my with my parents and things. There's always this, like for, for instance, it's not a it's not a phone technology, but uh, the inclusion of uh, pig heart valves in heart surgery, right? And it solves the problem. It solves the problem. But if my father had to do it, he won't do it. He'd rather die then do that. Um, uh, so it, it kind of, the chapter kind of opened my mind is that, oh, okay, this is something of a movement that can be happening in, in designing of systems, which kind of takes care of other things rather than just solving the problem. Uh, oh my God, Absolutely. look at the time. I know that, that was a great example though. And I think yeah. I, I like that you have applied it outside of the realm of just digital technology. Mm to think about other problems because I think there are some people who would chafe at that kind of restriction, right? Which they Mm. might consider kind of arbitrary to the problem of heart surgery. But if your quote unquote users are people Mm. who don't want to use those valves, then you Mm. just have to work to design something that will work for them. Yeah. Or um, make them um, make a decision or make them come on board so that they can be, in my example, you know, they can be religious scholars uh, can be brought in and they can, uh, they can devise a ruling which might help out other people to, you know, so it's, there are solutions around it. Yeah. So it is, um, now, um, I really had to ask you something because it's time's running out on me. Um, um, I, I found the algorithm chapter quite, quite interesting. And it kind of opened up my mind that algorithm is not just about it connected to the filter bubbles uh, chapter as well, uh, that it's not just about getting results on Facebook or getting results on Google. Algorithms are used by companies and systems to make decisions and make models within within the uh, within the organizations as well. Um, So the thing about self-regulation 
as per the algorithm charter that people should read in the book. It's explained really nicely by uh, Andrew Chen. It's really good. Um, do you think it, there's a necessity of legislation, um, a, a more concrete regulation of algorithm as compared to the compared to the charter? Or you think that we are taking time to get to that point? The thing is that the time it takes for the government uh, machinery or legislative machinery to get to that point, we are already 15 years behind of uh, the developments that have happened. So what are your thoughts on, on that? I think first up, the idea of uh, regulation of technology and tech law is so specialized that I'm not going to pretend I can speak to it in detail. Mm. There are lots of very, very smart tech lawyers who have thought about this in, in a lot of detail, but mm. I do, uh, I know that there's lots of different ways that you can get essentially compliance with different requirements, mm. whether that's the algorithm charter um, or other rules that aren't necessarily leg legislative and that can move faster, but you need will and you need mandate mm. uh, and you often need, um, you know, other kinds of support, whether that's raising capability, whether that's some kind of, um, you know, uh, implications if you don't follow the rules uh, and that kind of thing. And so one thing that I haven't read yet, and I really is on my list, is that there was a review of the algorithm charter that um, Andrew mentions in the book, and that yeah. review has kind of come out now just very shortly after the book was published. So mm. I am not, I'll have a look and see what they what they mm. said about that, but I, I'm, my guess is that some kind of, you know, more requirements that you do it or actually um, – yeah, compliance with, with it would actually add teeth because I think you can have rules that people mm. don't follow mm. and then they're not very useful rules. So yeah. I'm not sure of regulation and is the answer, especially because algorithms are tricky and that they're used for everything. Yeah. And so trying to delineate which ones you do and don't cover. But I think that the kind of outcomes approach is pretty good in most cases, although they talk about medium and high risk and that can you know, people's view of what risk is, is very different. Mm, yeah. So um, all of that is to say, there are people smarter than Kelly and I on this particular topic that I would point to, but I think that just having voluntary rules by themselves is a great start, but isn't going to, unless people actually do the thing they need to do, it's not going to make the difference in the outcomes. I think they need to buy the book and read that chapter. I think totally. That's, that's I, the... <laughs> I can recommend that. And I, you know, and there are lots of people in government and outside of government thinking about it. And I hope again that the folks that have signed up to the charter are working out how to implement it. And I think and joining together to kind of learn from each other because there is the risk that you know fifty different agencies each try to invent the wheel. Where some there are some differences, but you could really join up and get a lot of benefit that way. Kelly, do you want to add anything? <laughs> no, you pretty, you pretty much covered it. Um, it, it. Just to say that it's hard to regulate individual technologies like, you know, algorithms because the ways that they work change so mm. fast and are often quite opaque. And so I think um, it's always going to be a little bit of an uphill battle to write actual legislation. Yeah. Uh, but I think something that has a little bit more power and a little bit more mm. teeth than just kind of like a, a voluntary program is is probably going to be needed. And 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 I found the chapters really really interesting because they it was explained in a way that I started to connect. How it's like a, algorithms are like human it's our brain that's how it works we have the current information we work on the current information and we assess the future and make decisions about the future that's how our brain works right so it and it is hard to regulate our brain so <laughs> you are absolutely yeah you're right it's uh, so it's it's i mean we're um coming to a point uh, where we start to wrap up so um, i mean there's so many topics that are it's uh, that's the thing with with chapters right so with different topics you have so many things to talk about um what was your main goal in terms of um um in terms of of the book what type of contribution does it make and you know what uh, people who read it what might they do um going forward well we hope that the book makes a contribution this mm -hmm. is going to sound dorky to a better world that we yeah. start thinking about doing things in ways that do work for other everyone and also 
hopefully making it really clear that it is possible, that it's not just kind of uh, pie in the sky or just like do gooder thinking, that this stuff mm. will make a difference and it is doable. And there are kind of different levels of doable. There are things that you and I can do in our daily lives. And I think I especially think about the kind of tips and hints at the back of the accessibility mm. um, chapter about that, which you know, I think about quite often and have started mm. implementing stuff. And then there are ones that are a bit more kind of systems-y. But I mm. think that hopefully people get practical tips to start thinking about this stuff. Mm. And I think that hopefully it elevates things. I think when you work in a topic day in, day out, you can take it for granted. And I take it for granted that everyone knows this stuff. Mm. And especially things about Māori data sovereignty and what it means around honouring the treaty in tech and data projects. I think that's still very evolving in the kind of big picture. So to be able to, these, you know, Amber, Hidia and Karaitiana think about this stuff all day and mm. they're experts and have a lot of knowledge to give. And I think that, you know, and all of the, the authors in the book. So we really hope that um, folks will get read and listened to hopefully, <laughs> and it will start to kind of push the boat in what we think is the right direction a little mm. bit. Uh, and it will be there, you know, you've got a book that's there forever. So it might, mm. It can be a slow burn, mm. so to speak. Kelly? That's pretty much a great description. Mm. I think also just making sure that people do consider technology in a wider sense than just apps and social media mm. and being on the computer. Um, I think that kind of like binary is starting to break down, but just to realize that uh, we use digital technology all the time and digital technology uses us, you know, like as you say, even if you log mm. off, your information is still in a lot of these systems and being used. So just thinking about the interaction of like power systems, money, technology, and equity is important to us. And thinking about um, how in order to make some of these changes, we can't just have kind of easy Band-Aid fixes. You need to change big systems, which is like scary and horrible, but I think sometimes horrible to consider, although I'm excited about it. But I think mm. figuring out what's a long-term change and then what are some practical tips that people can kind of really get started on now. Mm. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed the book and people should get it from um, Bridget Williams Books uh, website and, and it's available at other outlets as well, wherever you can find books. And um, it was a very enlightening. Thank you guys for, um, thank you both for finding time to, to have a have a quarter with me. And um, it was great to just elaborate on, on the process. I, I Maybe it was more personal my, that I, I like talking to authors of how how they come up with ideas and how they write, so which was uh, which was fascinating to see. Um, now for the listeners, um, I think um, buy the book and also follow the steps that have been outlined in there, and um, it might uh, come uh, it might create a better world for us. So th thank you, Kelly and Anna. Thank you for coming. Um, Thank you for having uh, us. Yes. Thank you. It was great. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, listeners, I'll come back to you with another, another episode soon. Um, Norera, tena koto katoa. <laughs>